Welcome to Career Tools. This week, the Career Tools Guide to Personal Branding. The questions this cast answers are, what is personal branding? How do I create a personal brand? And what should my personal brand be? We've been working really hard on Roadmap, making it better and more useful. The next phase of the app will have some big changes, not to the way that you use it, but more capabilities. Maybe you've got more team members or you've moved jobs or you want to go green on your tasks or reset the entire app and start again. And soon you're going to have the ability to do all of that. New team member rollout capability will walk you through the Trinity steps timed just for that new team member. So everybody can be on a different timeline. We're adding the ability to reset your task list start date so that your task timings and reminders are correct. No more red just because you got distracted and a full reset will be possible. You can start fresh with a rollout if you got behind or you need to start all the way over or if you started a new job. So we're really excited about what's coming to Roadmap this spring. You need to be a licensee to get it. So go to the website and look for personal license under products. Sarah, I know you're super young and you don't remember the <laughs> 1990s, but in the 1990s, there was a book called, I think it's called Personal Brand. It's by Tom Peters. It was super popular. Everybody had it. Everybody read it. And what he suggested was that everybody should um, apply branding, that is the practice of describing and distinguishing a product to themselves. For companies, uh, it's the activity that means that when you think of a certain uh, grocery store, you know whether it's price or quality or something else that they distinguish themselves on. For people, it's, uh, in theory, what would get you put on a certain project or get a certain job. Uh, Tom Peters was mostly talking about freelancers, but a lot of people applied it to um, people in more conventional jobs. Um, and it just became a thing. And I don't think anybody remembers now. It's 30 years ago, which sounds like forever. Um, so there's lots of places that say, hey, you should have a personal brand and this is how to do it. And and nobody remembers that he wasn't talking to everybody. Um, <laughs> no, people and, assume it was everybody. <laughs> yeah, and, and pers personal branding is, well, we're going to talk about it today. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk. <laughs> so today, uh, what our topic is going to cover, uh, six main points. First, personal branding is nonsense. Uh, second, get results. Be nice. Dress well be punctual, and have your stuff together. So personal branding is nonsense. The thing about personal branding, in fact, branding in general, is it's a sexy marketing term for reputation. It just means your reputation, what goes before you, what people say about you. It doesn't matter what you try and carve out as your personal brand if you're not getting results and developing relationships. You can't go around, I can't go around saying, you know, I'm a supermodel because I'm not six foot and skinny. It doesn't matter how many times I say that. It's not ever going to be true. I can't develop a reputation for being a supermodel when I'm only five foot one. It's what we call catfishing. Exactly. That's a catfish. Exactly. It's totally true. And since it was introduced in the 90s, like, it's become a staple of career advice and so if you've, if you've been reading career sites, you may well think, I need to work on my personal brand. And you don't. What you need to work on is getting results and developing relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, guys, there's a reason that we say personal branding is nonsense. 
One description um, of personal branding that we saw was, your brand statement is not a personal mission statement or job title, but rather your catchphrase, if you will, about your specific expertise. Now, you can, we can all identify the problem here, right? Um, in that a catchphrase is something that becomes really well-known to the audience um, after someone has already proved themselves to be smart or funny um, in what I dare say might be our first and potentially last uh, utilization of the show The Simpsons um, as an example on a Manager Tools cast. Homer Simpson's dough wouldn't be a catchphrase if the show wasn't popular. It would just not exist because you can't have a catchphrase before you have a reputation, before you're popular. So there's no point in concentrating your efforts in developing a personal brand if you're not getting the results. It's a stepping stone. You have to have results and relationships. Then if you think about it, you can worry about your personal brand. But if you start with the brand, it's all fluff and no Substance. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Absolutely. Uh, A good analogy for this is a Tiffany's box. Now, a Tiffany's box, just it tells you something about what you can expect to find inside. Now, if you open it and you found a piece of jewelry from Walmart, there's nothing wrong with Walmart jewelry. But you'd be sorely disappointed with what you found inside because you had expectations of something different. Right. Right. That's the thing. And that's the reason that following advice to develop a personal brand without actually making sure that the underlying work of results is there in advance is you're promising Tiffany's with your brand statement and you're delivering Walmart. People are going to want to verify that what you deliver is as promised, guys. And if you're delivering Walmart, no amount of Tiffany's blue box and bows is going to convince people that you're Tiffany's. Dude, you're Walmart, right? It's just not going to happen. And reputation is important. And it has been important to people since, like, cavemen, like, forever, Um It's the way you find out about people that you don't know. Like, if there's a new guy in sales, you you don't go up to him and say, hey, what's your personal brand? Or what do you like? (laughs) What you do is you say, oh, there's a bloke in sales. Do you know him? And someone will say, oh, yeah, he's the new guy. I heard he was really smart. Or I heard he came from Proctor or, you know, something, whatever you've heard about him. And that, what you've heard, is the reputation. Um, And... This is how we communicate ahead of ourselves about what we're like. Um, so in that sense, personal branding is a new name for something ancient. But the thing is, when you actually get to Walmart, what their reputation is ceases to matter. Like Once you're actually picking up a lettuce, <laughs> it doesn't matter what Auntie Betty told you about the great prices she gets, right? It doesn't matter what she says. You're looking at the quality of the lettuce and the price for that lettuce, and you're deciding for yourself, is this what I want to pay for this item, right? Am I prepared to pay more and have organic, or am I okay with however Walmart gets its lettuces? And um, in, In order for the reputation to survive, it can't just be meringue. It can't be that you keep saying, I'm a supermodel. It can't be that Walmart keeps saying great prices for great quality if you get there and the quality is bad. That reputation won't last very long if, again, 
uh, you don't have the basis of the results and the relationships. Mm-hmm, absolutely. We've all heard that phrase, um, they talk a good game or almost no trousers or all hat, no cattle. Those types of phrases exist to describe the people that we're talking about, right? Those individuals whose branding or reputation is not backed up by reality. Like, it's, guys, it's honestly to be that person at work, it is far better to be the person who's known for actually being easy to work with, being smart, getting things done, than to have a cute marketing phrase to describe you that took hours upon hours for you to think up and be catchy and and smart, witty. And you don't need to spend hours thinking about what to be known for if you're known for qualities like being ethical, right? Or telling the truth, being trustworthy, being effective, right? Or, Or getting results, being nice, smart, punctual, having strong relationships. Those don't take witty catchphrases to sell to people. They don't. They take some work, some of them. But if you needed a list of things you want to be known for, those are the things you want to be known for. Easy, right? Um, And and we're not going to tell you um, how to be ethical or tell the truth or be trustworthy. You either know or you know and you don't believe us, in which case we're not going to convince you that you should be trustworthy and truthful. It's too late. Right. So we're not, we'll think, I think that will come back to bite you if you're untruthful. But you The know, time will tell. <laughs> I'll just wait for that. So we are going to talk about the others, getting results, being nice, being smart, being punctual, and having strong relationships. Because those are the things that you can work on and you can change and your reputation will go with you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, every time. So the first job, the first rule of any job is get results. And and this section is pretty short. And we don't want you to think that because it's short and we're not going to talk about it for very long, that it's unimportant. It's first because it is the most important thing. It doesn't matter how good your relationships are. If you are not getting results, you will get fired eventually and for some some people get away with it longer than others and for some people it's 90 percent of the results that the company think they should get and for some people it's 10 percent of the, what they think they should get it varies but but eventually the company says we're wasting money on this person who isn't getting results we talk about that all of the time at our public conferences um, from a managerial perspective there are two things results and retention And as much as we may not want this to be the case, results is always more important. And actually, while I'm talking about public conferences, if you are in the Chicago area, uh, we will be visiting your area uh, coming up really quickly here, March 3rd and 4th with our Effective Manager and Effective Communicator conferences. But yes, as Wendy said, results um, is paramount to those other behaviors. And what results means for you is, different to what it means for other people in your team and the company and your industry. So that's why we're not going to go into details. We have lots of guidance about how to get goals from your boss, about breaking them down and achieving them. And we're not going to include all of that in here. We just want you to remember for the rest of the time that we talk, getting results comes first. Getting results is the best thing to do. You know, the phrase is, um, all hat and no cattle and similar phrases exist to describe people who are all show and don't get results. And we've all been on a team where there's some guy who doesn't seem to be pulling his weight and isn't getting fired. And 
you know, sometimes it's because they're related to someone. Sometimes it's because the manager hasn't got the guts to fire them. Sometimes, you know, if you're in government or, you know, places where it's it's more difficult, it's not impossible, but it's more difficult to fire people, you know, maybe that's why that person has been able to stick around. But we all have felt, those of us who are productive and want to get on, which if you're listening to Crittles, I'm assuming you are. Um, we've all been frustrated about the person who is useless, but very nice often, and bafflingly manages to keep their job year after year. And we don't want you to be that person. So get results. Yeah, no amount of nice will make you get over the lack of results. Right? And guys, there's nothing difficult in the other recommendations that we're going to make. You can do all of them and get results. You don't get to say, oh, geez, I didn't get my work done today because I was too busy speaking kindly to my coworkers. I should say that, right? You should, you should try it. It takes me really long time to think about how to say something nicely. <laughs> right? You should say that one time. I would laugh you out of the building. For sure I would. Being kind, guys, takes no more time than being nasty does. However, as Wendy just alluded to, having your stuff together might take a little bit more preparation than you're used to right? But the being nice in the face of many reasons not to be, I'm going to say, um, will save you a lot of time in the long run, right? And you can use those additional, that additional time that's being saved by your better relationships by dressing well and being five minutes early for all of the meetings you've ever attended. It's amazing how much work you don't have to do if you have good relationships. Someone's like, no, don't worry about it. I'll just do it for you. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah. Right, exactly. Okay, so be nice. So the, the second part of career success is relationships. And being nice goes a long way to having the kind of relationships that we want you to have. And being nice doesn't mean being sycophantic or uh, agreeing with everything that somebody says or, you know, just being cloying. You don't have to be any of those things. If you are... Uh, a high D or a high C, and you tend to talk in very short sentences and be kind of abrupt, all you have to do is be less abrupt. It's not even like you have to add words or... um, Say them slower. Yeah, you don't have to (laughs) recreate yourself. All you need to do is say the person's name at the beginning and end, uh, you know, and say the same thing, and that's being nice. Um, and I should tell everybody who is listening, who's new, um, when I say high D and high C, these are the letters of DISC. It's a behavioral uh, instrument that talks about the way you behave, the way you prefer to behave. Um, and there's a bucket load of podcasts about them on the website. Just go and search DISC and there'll be loads for you to read on. Um, it's the one thing that changed my life, I would say, my work life. So it's worth going and doing that research. Absolutely. For sure. Guys, being nice comes down to just the three basic rules. Help people when you can, speak kindly, and be supportive even when you can't help. Now, practically speaking, help where you can means that if a colleague asks for your assistance, whether or not it's convenient to you at this moment, you try and help. And guys, there's a reason we add the whether it's convenient to you or not part in there. And the reason for it is it's never convenient for you. 
to help, right? How often is it convenient for you to help? It's not like you've got a calendar block set aside for an hour each day on your schedule, helping other people's time, right? Yeah, right. Help others' time. Help others' time. It's not a recurring event. Never seen that on a calendar. No, no. And, And another thing that I have never seen on my calendar is that part of the day where you run out of work to do. Like by 2 p.m. I'm done and I'm calling around like, hey, who needs help? We don't have time to help other people. And that's the point, right? Now, guys, we should say here, we're not saying you need to interrupt like your your head down, you're in the weeds, hardcore thinking, um, and, and you stop everything that you do to help somebody else. That's not what we're saying. You can say, for example, can you just hang on 10 minutes while I finish this thing up um, and I'll get to you and I'll help you out, right? We're, we're reminding you here not to show frustration when someone asks for help and the timing isn't perfect and trying to help anyway. Paul, our IT guru, when he, when he calls, he always says, good time or bad, and I always think... That's never a good time. <laughs> right? It's not like I was sitting here thinking, I wish Paul would call, call and ask me something complicated. Yeah, I know, right? It, it never happens. <laughs> no, it never you. happens, right? Um, but yeah, so just remember when somebody interrupts you or when somebody asks for help, there is never going to be a good moment. And as long as, you know, you're not really in the middle of something that you cannot drop, then help anyway. Not showing frustration, then, leads us nicely to the next point, that is speaking kindly. Now, this, I say from experience, is one of those it's easier to say and harder to do kinds of phrases, right? Um, There's a few things you can do, like just for um, some clues or cues for yourself um, that you can do to help yourself speak more kindly. First one, smile. It's hard to say harsher words and be mean when there is a smile on your face. It's just in your brain. It's like these two things don't go well together. <laughs> right. Doesn't the science say if you smile, your brain thinks you're happy? Like it's, a, it's, a, um, it's the reverse of what you think. Your brain doesn't think you're happy and then you smile. You smile and your brain thinks you're happy. So if you smile, you're much more likely to say something nice because your brain thinks you're happy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the second is be a bit slower in your speech. That is, take a breath and consider what you're about to say. Now, the length of time it takes you to think about your words and swap them out for some kinder ones is going to seem like forever inside your own head. But the person that you're speaking to won't even notice you skipping a beat, especially um, going back to kind of what Wendy was saying earlier, if you're familiar with the high Ds, there's a tendency for us to speak rather quickly, like to the point of the audience isn't ready to even receive the answer yet. (laughs) So if it takes you an extra moment, they're actually probably thankful for the fact that it wasn't so quickly they could barely pay attention. It's true. And I I think I've told this story before, but um, I have a habit of starting uh, sentences with so. Uh If you hadn't hadn't noticed, that means Paul, the the sound guru, has taken them out because Paul makes us sound good. but I was doing a Toastmasters speech and I was really concentrating on not starting sentences with so. And so what I would do is say so in my head and then say the rest of the sentence out loud. So I was hearing so in my head, but I wasn't saying it out loud. 
Ah, nobody noticed that I'd stopped saying so, but they all said, really good use of pause. You, you spoke more slowly and we understood more of what you said. I like your pace. Yeah. I was like, that wasn't what I was going for. And the so took forever in my head. Yeah. And to them, it made the whole thing better because I wasn't rushing from sentence to sentence. You can actually put very long pauses in between your sentences, much longer than you think without people noticing at all. And you can always make, you know, I'm thinking or hmm or, you know, give me a second kind of noises so that if you think that people are waiting and they're thinking, why is he not answering me? You can make one of those noises. Yeah. That's what we have those noises um, for. Um, um, um. Yeah, like just like a... Yeah. Hold on, let me think through the consequences um, while you think about what you're about to say. Yeah. And the next then... Uh, is working on actually swapping some of your current phrasing out um, for ones that are better. For example, um, you could replace um, you idiot with that didn't work out so well. What could we do differently next time? Um, Or you could replace I can't believe that you had the gall to ask me that question with I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do that. Can you help me understand why I'm the right person? to take this over. Um, replacing things like, well, that's a stupid idea with, I think there's some additional considerations that might suggest a different solution. Let's talk through those real quick. Uh, things like um, replacing, oh, stop babbling on with, I'm sorry, I only have a couple more minutes. Could you give me the bottom line or, or, or let me know what this is about? Um, and replacing the, <laughs> the word thanks with thank you. I appreciate your help. It's amazing how easily you can do this. It's kind of like living in a foreign country, which... (laughs) It's a new language. uh, Sarah, Sarah, you work in a foreign country a lot because you work in the US. Um, And there are words that if you say them, people don't understand what you're saying. I did it today. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Where? Um, With Cassie, we were talking and I said something about holiday. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, you mean like my vacation? I'm like, yes, your vacation. I apologize. And she actually said to me, she thought, oh, I thought that was a European thing. And I'm like, no, that's an everybody but the United States thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's a Commonwealth thing. Yeah. So so being able to replace the word that you commonly use with another one is, is actually much easier than you think. And you do this all the time of using phrases that are not necessarily what you're thinking. You know, you tend not to say to your boss, you're an idiot. At least if you want to stay employed, you you don't say that. Um, you know, sometimes there's a sarcastic comment when, you know, he trips over the bucket, but um, mostly we don't say to our bosses, you're an idiot. And yet we want to say it to our peers or to people on other teams or our customers. I, I have been called an idiot by somebody. Um, Ouch, that's and, harsh. Yeah, I know. And we all have. <laughs> well, that's how it felt too. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. We all have go-to words that we tend to use in certain situations. You know, I quite often call people numpties, uh, which is okay because I've taught the management tools team what numpty means, but it's another word for an idiot. Mm-hmm. And since I'm usually saying it as a joke, I can get away with it. But if it wasn't being taken as a joke, all I need to do is think of another word that was more kind, uh, like. Oh, that didn't go very well, did it? And it's amazing <laughs> how having when you think about when you think about these things in a calm way, in a different situation, 
Um, if you know someone who's really good with words, maybe watch and listen to what their stock phrases are um, and replace them. It's super easy to get into the habit. You just have to make a little effort. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And instead of also, an, or another tip I should say, um, is using we instead of you. Like we did in the first example. It makes what you're saying come across as less confrontational, just in general. Yeah, like you idiot replaced with what can we do differently? It's me and you. We're a, we're a team. Let's do it together. Let's do it together. Exactly. And so does things like saying, I'm sorry. And our, our things like, I must have misunderstood. Um, even when you're pretty sure that they're wrong, saying, I must have misunderstood, which is also a form of, if you're familiar with uh, Shot Across the Bow, where you're letting someone know, you know that they're incorrect. Now, if they know that they are incorrect as well, they now are aware of the fact that you know. However, if they're not aware of the fact that they're incorrect, they're just going to brush over it. It doesn't seem out of place at all because they don't realize the mistake they've just made. Right. Saying I'm sorry or I must have misunderstood, lots of people don't want to do that because they think it's weakness and they, or they think they're admitting something that they're not. If it goes to a better relationship or if it calms the situation down or if it improves the conversation you're having, why would you not say those things? And, you know, if you say, I must have misunderstood, and you know for 100% certain that you didn't misunderstand, then, okay, that is a very rare situation. You know, like I feel like 50 to 75% of the time, I may have misunderstood what was said. I may have misremembered. I may have written it down. I may have re- uh, uh, misinterpreted what I wrote down. Yeah. I may have not heard the the between the lines that was going on. You have to admit sometimes that you do misunderstand exactly. Things. And and so it's not like you're lying. It's not like you're not sorry that the conversation is going downhill, or you're or it's possible that you know if you say. Um, I must have misunderstood that you're you're lying because it's entirely possible that you misunderstood. So say those things and watch the conversation de-escalate. And when you've done that a couple of times, you'll be like, well, I'm going to say that every time because the whole... Because why not? Yeah, we don't want to go through work, (laughs) our work week, fighting with people. Nobody wants to do that. Okay, so some people do. Um, Yeah, some people do, but we choose not to work with them. Yeah, exactly. You know, a peaceful workplace, if all it takes is saying some different words, is so worth it. So worth it. Absolutely. All right. And finally, in the be nice section, we have be supportive even when you actually can't help. And we've covered this in the other, the previous cast. I want to say it came out a couple of weeks ago. um, How to build relationships when you're too far away for lunch. But briefly, you can say complimentary phrases like, uh, I was impressed by, or I thought you handled that well, uh, I loved your idea, or uh, express sympathy or sympathetic phrases by saying, ooh, that was a tough call, or I'm so sorry you lost the deal, Um, I'm sorry you're sick or feeling unwell, things like that. Okay, next up we have dress well. And dress well has a pretty low bar to be honest, 
Dress in clothes that fit without holes or stains. Get your hair cut, shower daily. That's easy. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the clothes we wear to work have become more and more relaxed over the last 100 years. And we know that people in Silicon Valley wear shorts and T-shirts and hoodies and skateboards. And, you know, I'd rather see people in business suits, but that's just me. And it's reality. But that doesn't mean that you can't follow the suggestions above, you know, like shorts that fit without holes or stains, you know, a T-shirt that fits, a hoodie that fits. Yeah. That's none of none of that precludes you from wearing something comfortable just because it fits doesn't mean it's uncomfortable. Um it doesn't say that you can't you have to have something that's really starchy. Um you know, you can have something soft. You can wear silk, which is lovely and helps you breathe. Um you could buy a uh, natural fiber cotton is always very soft. So, you know, we're not saying you have to be uncomfortable. We're saying you know, your clothes have to be just the kind of minimum standards. Yeah, just a minimum standard. And how you dress or or what you appear, what your appearance suggests matters. If you've heard of ugly vegetables. This is my favorite. I know, I know. I love ugly vegetables. There are so many services now where you can purchase misfit vegetables and they'll be delivered to your house, right? Like vegetables that there's nothing wrong with them. They're perfectly fine. They're not moldy or diseased. There's actually nothing wrong with them. Some are just small or they're too big. They have a blemish. They're slightly, I don't know, off color or they have some other um, appearance impacting but non-flavor impacting problem. Now, the grocery stores don't stock these, right? Because in the stores, they only purchase grade A, right? Like top quality veggies. Stores only buy top quality veggies for displaying on their shelves beautifully for consumers to buy because confronted with an ugly vegetable in a grocery store, consumers assume there must be seriously wrong. If you have a garden, you'll know just how many carrots grow and they have two legs. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's something seriously wrong. And because consumers assume something might be seriously wrong, they move on and they grab a different carrot or a different cucumber or what have you. And why are we talking about vegetables? I have to tell you this first. So my brother works in import-export and for a while he did vegetables and fruits. He has a thing on his desk, which is a banana curve measure because bananas, to be grade one, they have to be a specific amount of curve. That's awful. Hilarious, but awful at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So confronted with someone at work who's clothes don't fit or which are torn or stained, we draw conclusions in the same way we draw conclusions about vegetables. Is it right? No. Is it fair? No. But is it fair to the poor carrot who has a bump where it grew around a stone and now it can't go to H-E-B? Like, it, you know? Poor carrot. Yeah. It could taste as good as every other carrot, but we look at it and we draw conclusions, and those conclusions, unless it's in a box that says ugly vegetables, um, we draw conclusions about the quality of that carrot. And the same thing goes for people. It's a silly illustration. It, it is, for those of you who are thinking, God, that's ridiculous. You're right. It is silly. But it shows what's important. We all draw conclusions about the way things look, whether we intend to or not. And if you want a reputation for being at least competent, you have to reach a minimum standard for dress. Absolutely. 
All right. And then be punctual. Being punctual is a really easy way to distinguish yourself from other people because so many folks are not punctual, right? Being punctual really means being a couple of minutes early so that you're able to start whatever activity, the next meeting, what have you, at the exact time that meeting's supposed to start rather than two or three minutes late because you got there on time, being punctual. One daily example of this is the conference calls or the video calls that, you know, seem to fill up our calendars. And for the call that starts at 10 a.m., you need to dial in at 9.57, as this gives you time to launch the software, to alter the sound and the microphone settings, make sure your background is tidy, find the papers, you know, all the things that you need to do in order to be ready to start at 10 a.m. Now, lots of meetings don't start when they're advertised to start, but that doesn't mean that you should be the person who's late. You know, if you're ready at 10 and the meeting doesn't start till five past, you can sit at your desk and, I don't know, like clear out email or file some papers or um, check what's going on in the news for five minutes. You know, it's not like you have to sit there and, you know. Right, wait with bated breath for the meeting to occur. Yeah, I sit in silence and look at my camera. Uh, you You can still do something and you're still the early person. If you're working with technology that's generally glitchy or you find that three minutes isn't enough, then give yourself a few more minutes. If you... We use um, Zoom on a Friday morning for our ops call. And I have to say nine times out of 10, it only takes two minutes. And every now and again, I do something to my computer and it takes five. And so every week I dial in at 20 past usually just to give myself that extra time. And it's early in the morning. It's a big deal. It's like our whole company on a call. So I want to be ready and I want to be not worrying about my technology by the time that Mark and Mike arrive on the call. Yeah. Well, and going back to the building relationships piece, Wendy, you and I recorded a podcast relatively recently where we talked about how much of our relationships with our coworkers are built in the in-between spaces, right? In that the couple of people that are always on the ops call early and are chattering in the morning, right? While we're all getting set for the day you still have the opportunity to build relationships and converse with your coworkers and those types of things. What you don't want to be is the person who's desperately and frantically, you know it, texting at five minutes past the hour, past the meeting started, saying, oh my goodness, I can't get in. Oh, I need the password to be resent to me. Um, or asking what the meeting's about. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't read the agenda. I don't, is it, is it really my turn to present right now? Oh, darn it. I thought I was at the end of the agenda. Right? Are we doing an audio call or a video call? Where am I supposed to? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't be that guy. Exactly. That's all we're saying. That person is anything but punctual. You don't want to be them. You don't. If you're smart, you may have noticed a flaw with this plan. What if your previous meeting goes all the way to 10 o'clock or a few minutes after? How do you dial in to the second meeting at three minutes too? Well, there's an answer to that. Start having 45-minute meetings. Then you have a transition time of 15 minutes, and that way you can start being on time really easily. And there is a Manager Tools cast about 45-minute meetings and how to implement them. And I know lots of the time that other people set the meetings and you don't have a choice about the time that it takes or when they, how long they set it for. But if you do have a choice, make it 45 minutes. We know that Parkinson's Law says the work expands to fill the time available and Horseman's corollary, I can't say that word. <laughs> that corollary. Corollary. No, see. Uh, <laughs> the, 
that the work shrinks to fill the time you give it. If you give it 45 minutes, you might be amazed at how many meetings take 45 minutes. If you use Google Calendars as well, Google Calendar has a setting. It's called Speedy Meeting. So when you book your times in your calendar, it forces you to put them either 50 or 25 minutes to keep those shorter meetings. That's neat. I bet Outlook has that too. I'm sure it does. I, I haven't used Outlook in years, but yes, I'm sure almost all the calendaring softwares. Because you guys all know, right, that's why meetings are always an hour long or 30 minutes long. Because calendaring, calendaring software told us to. Yes. And so we make the meetings that long, right? It's it not makes a, no yeah, sense. It makes no sense. It's not a good enough reason to do it like that because calendaring software said so is a silly reason. So start having more 45-minute meetings and treat your calendar like it is the rule of law. The lines at the beginning and end of your activities aren't like wishy-washy estimates, like gray in color, <laughs> right? They're like solid lines, hard deadlines that you hold yourself to the standard of, I must meet these deadlines. And you don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to, you know... Here's my new year's resolution. Just start doing it. People will notice and they'll think you'll get a reputation for being someone who knows what's up. So the last of these is have your stuff together. And I spent a long time thinking about the people who are described as having their stuff together. What and is the, the behavior? Who are not. Right. So a reputation for having your stuff together means people can expect you to know what you're supposed to be doing when you're supposed to be doing it. And they expect that you're going to do it to the required quality, if not better, and to the required timeline. In other words, you get the stuff done that you said you were going to do, when you said you were going to do it, how you said you were going to do it, and people can rely on you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what would it look like to look at somebody who has their stuff together? It means you show up to meetings with the agenda printed out and notes handwritten on it, if you've got any questions or things to add at those specific junctures, because you've put notes on it ahead of time in your pre-meeting review of the agenda um, and have thought actually through the issues and what you want to share. Um, also, they come to each of the meetings that they go to with a notepad and a pen in hand to take any notes. Their wrist, if you look at it, there is a watch on it so that they can keep their eye on the time without having to constantly look out or, or tap their phone screen to make it light up and show them the time, right? They are prepared such that they don't need to look at their phone for any reason, frankly, because they've kept up with their work and communicate well enough that they don't get those emergency texts because something's on fire because they didn't plan ahead for that. They've planned. And you can watch people in your company, watch the people who have the reputation for having their stuff together and notice what it is that they do. It's really easy for people to say, oh, that person has their stuff together. It's all in one neat little bag. You can um, too. <laughs> yes, but it's only behaviors. And if one person can do it, you can do it too. You have to have a system for capturing tasks, for doing tasks, for recording information and for preparing for what's coming. And we've talked about these things hundreds of times before, and there are casts for all of them. So here's one way to find casts. If you go to manager-tools.com and look for the map of the universe, it looks like a Sputnik. It's kind of in the right top right. And you click on it, it's a mind map of all of our casts. 
look for professional skills and then personal productivity. And you can find all of the guidance that we've given about knowing what you're supposed to be doing, getting it done and doing it well. Absolutely. So guys, at the end of the day, you can spend time working on your own personal brand if that's what suits you. Or you can spend time actually putting in the harder work of investing in being ethical, effective, trustworthy, getting your job done, being that person who has their stuff together and building relationships. And frankly, we recommend the latter. Because if you're a meringue, someone one day will find out there's no pie. Exactly. You're Walmart. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Wendy. That's it for this topic. We'll be back next week with something new.